Welcome back to the Guide on the Side podcast, the podcast about becoming a better communicator, educator, leader, teacher, and friend. We're going to dive into episode three, which is talking about typing our kids or maybe mistyping our kids um, and how to effectively start to discover the type of your child or student or niece or nephew or whatever small person might be in your life. <laughs> All right. So I know it's been a while. <laughs> um, so my apologies. But, you know, there is no tired like the beginning of the school year teacher tired. <laughs> and so um, I know so many of you have been kind of trudging through the mud here for the last couple of months, you know, our first couple of months of school. So if you are feeling extra tired these days, uh, you're not alone. And just remember that you're not alone and we're going to make the best of it. Um, sometimes we just need some rest. I think that that's a really important aspect to remember, um, especially now, and just the value of rest. And rest doesn't have to be sleep, though there are some big differences between um, restfulness and actual sleep. Obviously, we need actual sleep, but just finding some space for rest and maybe this podcast is your space for rest or just your morning commute or, it, you know, drive is your space for rest or maybe just a mindful moment or a small meditation is your space for rest. So, um, so just remember that rest is important and it helps your brain restore itself it helps your brain um, kind of take like a mini nap <laughs> and it, it ignites our senses and our neurons when we have rest. So try to find some rest this week or today or even just in your short-term future so that your body can recover appropriately. But I really want to talk about this idea of typing children or maybe even mistyping children. Um, I think it's a really common trend and uh this idea of like resiliency and its relationships to kind of different types of parenting. And I recently listened to a podcast episode um, about child and student resiliency and, and how overparenting or helicopter parenting, um, if you aren't familiar with that term, we call it helicopter parenting. It's kind of like when your parents are constantly around and they're living their child's life for them and making things perfect and fun and happy and accessible and how that's not always the best way of parenting. Um, you know, not everyone has their own opinions about parenting and, you know, I've seen a lot of parents, uh, in my life as an educator and I think they were all just trying to do the best with what we have. And so giving this idea or this topic, um, with giving yourself some grace that we're not perfect. And even if you're a type one and you're striving for perfection that, you know, nobody's perfect and, and nobody is doing everything right. And I think this is especially, um, especially in this generation in which I live, it's kind of like. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of like a zenial, I'm, I'm in between Gen X and the millennial generation and just remembering that, um, you know, our parents are, were just doing the best 
that they could with what they had. And so we also should just try to do the best. We don't, we don't have all of the tools and resources always. And so um, just going into this topic with an open mind and without judgment and just really looking at things objectively um, as a type five would, but really focusing on this idea of resiliency and, and helicopter parenting and identifying our kids and, and talking about identity in general. I think that's a really big thing right now, particularly with um, adolescents and young adults, but uh, I see a lot of it. There's a lot of impact just on young kids too. And um, oh, they're going to be this when they grow up, or you're going to be, you know, you're going to be a great lawyer when you grow up or a great doctor. I can't wait for you to become a doctor when you grow up and um, helping them find their identity and understanding that each of our identities is really rooted in who we are, but also, you know, those environments that and experiences that shaped us. And the more that we can provide a, a variety of experiences, um, deep experiences that our identity then kind of becomes true and the vision of our identity is revealed and also remembering that at the cellular level that, you know, we're completely different people. Um, you know, every seven years, our cells completely regenerate and we rebuild ourselves as literally a completely different human in about a seven year time frame. So if you look at your life in periods of seven years, you know, seven years ago, you might not be the same person that you are now. And it is literally true at the cellular level. So Remember to kind of give kids this opportunity to grow and to change and allow their identity to grow and change as they get older. Um, and bringing alongside us as, as parents and educators and partners, I think that's really important. Um, giving this space to be more fluid in our identity um, and for our children's identity, especially at the adolescent level. If you're a parent or a teacher um, of a kid that's like between ages like 10 and 18, they're really developing their own sense of identity. And it's important for them to really focus on who they're becoming and what their values are and what aligns with them and what doesn't align with them. Um, they're, you know, their parents with kids that are like, basically any kid ages birth to 12, are, they're consumed by the identity of a child um, and kind of living through their child's identity. And we see that in a lot of different ways. And I think that sometimes we can impose or superimpose um, our own types and our own struggles and self-preservations um, onto our kids. Um, and we, when we don't recognize that their own internal motivations are there too, like we want um, to help guide them, but we're forgetting that we're also guided by our own motivations and experiences. So if we're, if we want our kids to be motivated by something, um, they have to be motivated buy it on their own kind of essential level or being that they have their own individuality, their own motivations and intentions and goals and processes um, and the way that they're going to process stuff. So when we use tools like the Enneagram to better understand, um, this allows kids um, to kind of create their own identity or be supported um, by their own identity. And that's really what the Enneagram support is. It's what the Enneagram does. It kind of helps you figure out a little bit more about who you are maybe and why you're the way that you are. And I think it's really great for um, for us because and for kids because it, it reminds them like, hey, this this child is not an accessory to my own identity or to my life um, and that it's it's got its own needs and uh, motivations and needs to be recognized as their own individual being. Um, 
you know, we have parents like the dance moms and the soccer coach dads that want their kid to be a little version of them. And I think a lot of that is because they haven't really dug into work of their own um, and reflecting on like, what are my own processes? What, what is my own internal motivation in this? And am I living in my own self-preservation? And oftentimes, like when you don't dig in and when you don't do the work and observe and turn that magnifying lens around on yourself, um, you're missing the bigger picture. You're missing the point and you're not giving a chance for your kid or your student or your nephew or whoever um, that opportunity to do the same thing in, in doing their own work. So yeah, all of this, um, it really kind of actually alleviates us as parents and educators to not feel the need to blanket them or veil them with our, our own stuff. Um, so if, we, if we're bringing it back to the Enneagram speaking, you know, thinking about specifically about the Enneagram that, okay, so like me as a type five, you know, I'm, I'm a researcher. I love to dive into information. I want to know the back end on everything. I want to know all the facts and, and all the trivia, and I'm going to go like, full Alex Trebek on everything. And I expect my kids to do the same thing as a teacher um, and as a parent. And like, why don't you care about these things? Why don't you want to do this research? Why don't you want to know, you know, the the history and etymology of the word here? And, and they just don't. Why do you want to just gloss over this? Why don't you want to dig deeper? So, you know, as a teacher, it's kind of a superpower, I suppose, uh, because, you know, you want to motivate kids. You want kids to be like researchers, to be explorers and to, you know, get out there and, and look and, and figure things out and find the answers to things. Um, but there's a lot of kids that uh, either they don't know how to do that or, you know, it's just not what they want to do. Um, they might not be motivated by it. They are not deep in a type five. Um they're not, you know, they don't want to know every answer to every question. Sometimes they just want to go play or, you know, like organize their Legos or whatever that might be. Um, so their motivations are different than my motivations are. And if I'm constantly looking at them through my own lens of motivations, you know, my own high points of my type, then I'm doing them a disservice. Um, I'm not giving them the chance to find their own identity and, and express their own types. And the flip of that coin, though, is if if I don't model those things either, they don't realize that they have that chance. They don't realize what their opportunities are. And especially when kids are young, you know, when we're thinking about like kindergartners and first graders and second graders, they're waiting for us to tell them that it's okay. They're waiting for us to give our permission to things. They're, they're waiting for us to not necessarily give them the answers always, but they're always seeking out like that sense of approval. And if we aren't modeling how to dig in and how to think about ourselves and, and what we want and why we want those things, they don't know or they don't realize that and they don't realize that that's even an option. Um, and second of all, what that can do for them, like they don't know that they can get so much farther um, in their own self-discovery and the pursuit of their own identity and and really into their adult world, you know. I think that like looking at a seven-year-old, like, hey, what was your internal motivation behind this? That That's obviously a bit out of reach. Um, it's not necessarily the best verbiage to use or the best way to role model to a seven-year-old of, of who they are, or their identity. But there are ways that you can do that without being so heavy and deep and without being so explicit, you know, necessarily explicit. Um, just making it a bit more organic and coming to these things in, in a much more organic way. And all of that boils down to choice. 
when you are giving options and giving choice, you are giving experiences. You are giving those different costumes, the different hats for that child to try on. And as you continue to offer these experiences, you know, these options, you're also giving the language that goes with those options. You know, when we, um, in the classroom, we, as a reader, when we're teaching kids how to read, we do um, like think talk, we talk out loud, we tell our thoughts out loud. And we, when we're reading, we're like, oh, I noticed this word as I was reading it. And it's, it's really role modeling um, to a child of how to use the appropriate language with their feelings. Um, and it makes it possible for a child then to connect to this experience and the words that go with it or you know, the defining factors that go with this experience and, and what that might mean for them as you know, a student or a kid, but also as like a learner and a human and how they want to best evaluate or move forward in their own kind of existence you know, and blossoming into becoming um, their own adult. So when we talk about giving experience, um, you know, we have to think about what is going to appeal to them in a variety of ways. Um, so if we want to kind of like bring it back to like the tips to walk away with today, um, when we're talking about experience, like what, what does that look like? We're not, we're certainly not going to give nine choices <laughs> for the nine types. Um, nine choices is a lot of choices for a kid, but you know, would you like, uh, would you like to organize the pantry? Okay. Let's, let's give it like the vein of like helping out in the kitchen or like doing a chore kind of thing. Uh, it needs to be done with accountability, almost like accountability buddy style. There needs to be like partner play. Um, you as the adult need to be in the same relative space or doing the same kind of relative action at the same time so that you can model these things that they can't hear. Um, so that you can model these things. Um, out loud to them by giving them the choice. So, um, you know, would you would you like to organize the pantry? That would really appeal to a type one child, um, that sense of order, that sense of control. But this would also really appeal to a type A child, particularly that sense of control that, you know, I have the choice and I get to decide where everything goes in the pantry. That also requires us in letting go of the control. <laughs> um, if this is how you're going to give, you know, the, the option to do this, you need to follow through on it. Because what happens is if you reorganize the pantry um, after they have organized the pantry in whatever way they deem appropriate, it is telling them that you don't value their opinion, that you don't value their process or their thoughts. So whatever your options are going to be that, that you provide, you really need to stick with them. Could you help along the way? Of course. Could you give advice? You absolutely could. Um, but at the end of the day, if you undo their hard work, they're going to see that and they're not going to feel valued. They're going to pull away from that identity type because they think that it's less than. They see that it didn't make you happy, um, that you weren't proud, and it's going to do the opposite. So for the type ones, organizing the pantry, organizing you know the Tupperware cabinet, organizing the silverware drawer. It doesn't have to be like a giant, giant thing, um, but it needs to be something that's within the realm of possible for them. Uh, for those type twos, maybe it's like 
maybe you have a pet, you know, and like, let's give some fresh water to the dog or um, let's water the plants. Like if you don't have a pet, maybe you have indoor plants or a garden outside. Um, let's water the plants. Let's talk to them. Let's, let's get a, a wet towel and we can clean them or we can wash their leaves for the plants. But this idea of care and giving selflessly to something else or someone else that isn't alive, um, you know, some, things like that those type threes, uh, they're going to want to do, they'll do any job as long as you're paying attention, as long as you're watching them do that job. Um, they're the ones that they like to check the check off the to-do list. Um, so even if you're just writing down the chores and we're doing them together, that idea of like, oh, I get to scratch this off my list, that feeling of accomplishment. Um, they, these are also the kids that like, they want to uh, be a little bit competitive. So maybe it's, you know, a race or something like that. Um, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. This is what I want you to understand is these can be really basic tasks, tasks that you were going to do anyway. Um, and a lot of these tasks are, are going to appeal to a multiple different types and things like that. So any job that you're giving, if you're giving constant praise, you're saying like, um, you're making it a race, you know, sometimes that will work for the type three, but, um, Things like that, like let's who see who can bundle the socks the fastest or, you know, this idea of helping out around the house. Um, it's a physical action that grows muscle memory. You know, Maria Montessori, she's been talking about this for 150 years. You know, Maria always said like how important this is. This muscle memory is so important. And the physical action of doing something altruistically from the heart with internal motivation is the most important task that a child can do. Um you know, as a Montessori teacher from the past, I really, and having my own kid go through Montessori, I really feel and see the benefits of this, um, allowing a child to have that freedom, have that choice and that sense of control. And, um, it gives them that dopamine hit. So if we're looking at kids, particularly with ADHD, that sense of pride at the end, um, when they've seen a job well done, when they see the the result of their labor, it's going to motivate them to keep doing those things, to keep working hard um, and to do it because they wanted to do it because it was intrinsically motivated, not because they got paid for the chore or they get extra screen time or whatever. Um, you know, kids really, really, honestly, kids love to work. If you look at small children, especially um, the two-year-olds, the three-year-olds, the four-year-olds, they love having these jobs. Um, they love hosing things down. They love to wash stuff and scrub stuff. And yeah, they're going to make a mess. But guess what? Give them, give them an apron, give them a stool, give them the right tools for the job, but then let them just do the job. Um, you know, for those type fours, if we're kind of going around the wheel here, a type four would really love to put on like a special song, you know, saying like, hey, we're going to cook dinner tonight. Do you want to put on some music? Do you want to choose a special song? Um, one of the best things I ever brought into my classroom from years ago was a record player. It's like an actual, you know, vinyl record player. And I had just like a lot of odd choices. Like there was like classical music or show tunes, um, you know, things, old things from like movies and movie soundtracks and stuff like that. And just letting my students kind of peruse the record player and the options of records and then physically putting on that record. There is something to be said for, you know, putting on the CD or 
flipping the tape for those of you that are like 80s and 90s kids like me, um, that action of flipping the tape and, and letting them kind of um, have that emotional choice, you know, and nowadays even like letting them create like a Spotify playlist or something. If you've got older kids, um, it kind of sets the mood and it's going to appeal to those choices. Um, and if they get to do it in an emotional way, you know, if they're like, if you ask them about this, um, they will say, you know, like, why did you pick this record? I, I love this record. You know, what made you pick this? Just listening to them, listening to that backstory, that connection to the emotion um, or memory of, of why they chose what they chose. It's really going to um, spark up a type four. And it might also spark up your type sevens too, though. Um, they get so excited like, at like crafting these, um, the same with type threes, at like crafting these experiences or these moments or the vibe or the mood um, of the setting is really beneficial. And it draws out some of those high types, those high energy types as well. Um, so we go around like fives, obviously, we were just talking a lot about asking questions. Uh, the best gift that you can ever give a type five is a magnifying glass or a microscope. Um, just seeing the world through a different lens and, and noticing your type fives are the ones that are going to find the crumbs on the floor. They're the ones that are going to notice when something wasn't put back right. Um, they're going to notice, you know, the sky or, or the light in the room and the smells and things like that. Uh, oh, speaking of smells, um, that would also be a great thing for a type four is, you know, do you want to light a candle? Um, sevens also love lighting candles and, um, Oh, the eights, eights love lighting candles too. Now that I think of it, they really, uh, that action of, you know, playing with fire, but like setting, um, setting this mood and the, the emotional appeal, the, and the connection between, you know, uh, play, you know, making a fire and the element of danger there too. And understanding the, the safety of how to do something safe. Am I going to let a four-year-old light a candle? Probably not. Would I light, let an eight-year-old light a candle? Yeah, with my supervision, of course, because they need to understand how to do things um, independently, but in a safe way. Now, this might not be true, though, for your type six, that they're not going to want to light a candle. Your type six is going to be really afraid of a lot of things, and they're going to be really worrisome. So maybe your type six, you know, needs to restock the medicine cabinet or like restock the first aid kit. You know, hey, I see, you know, we need some more band-aids. Like maybe we should restock the first aid kit or, or maybe we should check our smoke detectors. Hey, why don't you, why don't you stand on this chair, the stool? I'll stand here beside you. Can you reach up and check the smoke detector? That would be something that highly appeals to a six. Um, it would also highly appeal to an eight just because an eight can be very much a protector. And this idea of like, hey, we're, we're keeping our space safe. Um, I'm just kind of, you know, looking around the kitchen and all these different things that can happen in just 30 minutes in the kitchen while you're cooking dinner. You know, you don't need to step away from the things that need your attention. Um, but it also, it doesn't mean that your child um, can't help out, you know, that everyone has this capacity to be helpful and to be included and engaged in, in these situations. Um, I think that the type nine child is probably going to be the hardest to pin down. Type nines are very chameleon-like. Um, they're the peacemaker for a reason. They want everyone to be happy. They want everyone to feel included. And they don't have a strong opinion either direction. Um, type nine people, I, that's kind of been what I've noticed um, in the many people that I interact with. Type nines, they're the hardest to identify at a young age because they can kind of morph 
Um, they like the things that their friends like. They like the things that their parents like um, because they want everyone to be happy. And so any of these kind of tasks or, or these, these jobs to do will appeal to a type nine because they get to do them with you. I think that that idea of like we're doing these things together um, is really going to, to spark up a type nine. So hopefully you're going to walk away today with um, some motivation, but also some tools, some things to try. Um, remember, you don't need to reinvent the wheel and you need to start small. You know, if you've got a kid that maybe it doesn't follow through on everything, you know, maybe organizing the pantry is not the best first opportunity for them. Um, especially, you know, if we're looking at like the type seven kids, they get super excited to start a task, but the follow through and the completion of a task is a little bit more challenging for them. Um, that, okay, I've, I've emptied the entire pantry and then they look around at the chaos that surrounds them and they lose motivation and they wanna dip out and bail on the project. That's where we as the adults, whether that be you know the parent or the teacher, we need to model the follow through. And that might be frustrating, you know, especially if you have other stuff that you're working on or things going on while they're doing this job um, and then they abandon the job, you are left to finish the job. And I think that that is where student resiliency or child resiliency is the most valuable because we're never going to get away from challenge. There's going to be things that are hard and difficult. And if we bail our kids out, we bail our students out every time, they've never had to do it on their own. They've never had to work hard um, and follow through on something. So yes, it, it might be frustrating. You might have to intervene. This is your opportunity then to role model and say, you know, we're not going to just quit on this task. We started it. And I think that we should finish it. And, you know, how can I help? If you, even just giving that choice of how, what would you like me to do? How can I help you? Um, some kids might not be able to verbalize that. Um, maybe you could give a suggestion and say, you know, like, I'll take care of these. You can take care of this. And then we'll get it done faster. We'll finish it faster. Um, it makes the overwhelming feel less overwhelming. It also gives you a little bit of a chance to kind of put in your two cents or your opinion about, you know, oh, maybe we should put all the cereal boxes on this shelf because, you know, then you can reach them really easily and we can see what we have and kind of talking them through your thought process that, again, that modeling out loud, um, it helps give the language to how to solve problems. It's critical thinking. And as a teacher, that is where I see a lot of support needed in my students is this aspect of critical thinking, um, grit, you know, just kind of like following through with resiliency um, and getting the job done, even if it is a less than appealing job. Hopefully the, the you know, the options you're giving or the jobs that you're giving um, your kids to do, hopefully they're appealing to your kids. So, you know, the, the big goal is to give experiences to help you figure out, you know, what type, um, what type of child you have essentially, or maybe which of the nine types that your kid kind of leans in towards more. I think it's really important too, though, on debriefing at the end, um, asking them, following up with, how did you feel? how did you feel in that moment? How did, you know, what was your favorite part of helping me with dinner tonight? I loved that you were in the kitchen with me. You know, what, 
I loved watching you, you know, cut vegetables. What was your favorite part of cooking dinner tonight? Little things like that. Um, it's all about gathering the data. And my students get so sick of hearing me talk about, you know, gathering data. Um, and as a five, I gather a lot of data um, as an observer. But the data is the important part. The data is where we can figure out what to do next. You know, we, we did the experience, we made observations, and now we need to kind of um, give a summary to that and, and figure out what that means for us. And as a parent, as an educator, there's no better data than listening to your kids, asking their opinion, um, asking their experiences, listening to their experiences and the emotion that's related to those experiences. That's where the motivations come from. That's where the intentions are. And those are the things that are going to help guide you into figuring out, oh, yeah, my, I guess my kid is more of a type eight than a type two or, oh, yeah, I guess my kid is more of a type six. I didn't think they would be so afraid of, you know, chopping with a knife or something like that. Um, as a side note, all kids should learn knife skills. All kids should be able to make food for themselves. Um, I remember as a Montessori teacher, I taught in um, what we call like the CASA, which is like the preschool level um, in Montessori. And we would give kids real knives, you know, to cut small vegetables with or, you know, cucumbers with or cheese or bread or whatever, that that is a huge component in the Montessori education is allowing a child to be independent. Obviously, I'm not going to give a small child a giant cleaver or butcher knife, um, but a small, not as sharp paring knife is a great task. So if you're a parent listening, just trust yourself. I'm, I'm, Obviously, you want to be there and you want to make sure that your kids are safe, but you got to teach them how to be safe, right? Show them how to use the knife, hold their hand, um, guide them through these things. You know, that's why you're the guide on the side. You're right there beside them, allowing them to kind of steer the ship, but you're the navigator. You know, you're guiding them with these experiences and these opportunities. Um, and that's our reward then as the parent or the educator or as the guide on the side, when you get to see their pride, when you see their happiness at the end of it, but also listening to them. Kids just want to be heard. That is, um, that's actually one of the, the most frequent things I've heard my sixth graders tell me over, you know, the years of teaching um, young adolescents is like, I just want to, I just want someone to listen to me. And I think that that's really valuable data. It's really valuable information because it's not just 12 year olds that want to be heard. It's not just seven year olds that want to be heard. It's not just adults that want to be heard. This is like a universal truth. This idea of, of being heard that when we speak, that someone values the words that are coming out of our mouths, you know, but also speaking in a way that others can hear you know there's that that Rumi quote the poet Rumi um it is rain that grows flowers not thunder and so this idea of the words that we choose um have a lot of value and it's not about saying them loud and it's not about saying them aggressively it's about saying them intentionally and so when we listen to our kids when we listen to those words and we provide them feedback that's the second most important component. So first you're going to listen and then you're going to respond. You're not going to respond first <laughs> because then you have devalued any words that are going to come out of your kid's mouth. You can start with a question. Um, you know, using the Socratic method or Socratic seminars in my classroom is a big deal. I ask a lot of open-ended questions that that are not easily 
uh, answered with, especially with like a general small statement answer. They're kind of big question, big, big question questions. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great way to kick off conversations with your kids. You know, uh, my daughter and I, I, I get to drive her to school a couple days a week and just asking some of those open-ended questions about what she thinks. Um, and then just listening and just really listening, looking her in the eye when I can, obviously when I'm driving, um, and letting her know that I'm just listening, but then following it up with something. Don't follow it up with, oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. D make it genuine. If you're going to listen to them be authentic, you need to be authentic with your feedback. Um, and for me, you know, the Socratic way would be then following it up with another question and getting kids to just keep the conversation going. So, you know, you helped organize the pantry. You've got, you know, a first grader. They helped organize the pantry. You're starting to see, you know, that they they love to organize and be clean. You know, maybe they are a type one or they're leaning into that type one in this season of their life. Asking the question at bedtime, like, what was your favorite part about today? What was your favorite part about organizing the pantry? Or I really liked how you put, you know, the baking goods on the bottom shelf because you love to bake and now you can reach them. What's your favorite part about how you've organized the pantry? You know, open-ended questions and then listening and then responding with, wow, I love that too. Or I love that you're thinking that way. Kids, I think that that's a really valuable sentence. I love that you're thinking that way. Because it's not that you're saying you're right or you're wrong. It's praising the fact that they're thinking at all. You know, we are rational, sentient humans or we're, we're people that get to think. And the more that kids are praised just for thinking will um, improve and will motivate that critical thinking skill, which we all know is really important and necessary as just a functioning adult. Um, so keep these things in mind. The, uh, the giving the options, giving the choice, finding ways to appeal to a variety of types, um, noticing, you know, just observing in the moment, gathering that data at the end. And that data is typically conversational um, or we call it anecdotal data, um, getting some clues about what to do next and starting small. <laughs> Don't take on giant, giant tasks unless you really know that your kid is ready for them. Um, you're ready to be there beside them to kind of help them out when they need it. Uh, but also letting them choose the task too, you know, giving them some ideas and then seeing where they run with that. These are universal to all ages of kids. Obviously, um, more responsibility or more independence as they get older uh, would make sense. But don't shy away if you are the parent of a toddler, you know, a two, a three, or four-year-old, don't shy away from these jobs. Let them scrub the table. Let them get a sponge and wash the front of the fridge. <laughs> um, and then let them hang what they want on the fridge in whatever order they want it to be hung on the fridge. Uh, and be happy with that. And then listen to what makes them happy about those things. That is how you can be an effective guide on the side for your kids, for your students, for your niece or nephew, who whatever small people are in your life. Um, but also, you know, these are universal to us adults too. whatever big people are in your life. Listening for feedback um, and being authentic in the way that we respond, in the way that we communicate um, with each other and with ourselves. Maybe you want to start observing yourself a little bit more and noticing, you know, 
as as you especially start to dig into the Enneagram and, and kind of like, what are your internal motivations? Um, what type might you be? How can you best communicate with yourself? Because that's kind of the point of it all, right? It's living within ourselves and living outwardly with others at the same time and how to do that delicate dance. Um, sometimes it's a ballet, sometimes it's a salsa <laughs> and, and just figuring out as we go. Remember to give yourself some grace along the way too. Um, give yourself some grace as a parent, give yourself some grace as an educator, because I see you teachers, we are the, the parents as well. Sometimes we're parenting parents, you know, and, and we're helping to parent their children. We're also always parenting ourselves, you know, and so we're helping raise great humans. We're all in this together. Um, I appreciate you listening today. Um, and hopefully you walk away inspired and motivated, um, to keep doing the work to uh, try on those costumes and try on those hats and find some choice and some freedom in those choices as you move forward. I hope that you find some rest this week. I hope that you find some joy this week. And as always, I hope that you are well. So we dug into a lot today. <laughs> um, a lot of deep bells, a lot of uh, good information. And as we close out, I think that we could use a small mindful moment of just recognizing where we are in the season of life that we currently live, um, both our emotional seasons of life and our metaphysical seasons of life, as well as our obvious physical seasons of life. So I invite you to kind of take a moment, take a pause some rounds of breaths and relaxing your ears away from your shoulders um, and allowing just some some rest and some stillness you know as we move into this new season as the, the weather becomes cooler and the sunlight is less um, remembering that rest is important for us um, as well and you know just as the tree trades its green leaves for dark leaves um, I'd like you to think about your own feelings, uh, whether they're feelings of tension or anxiety um, or, or stress or sadness, um, but your own feelings kind of doing the same, changing color, becoming cooler with the weather. As those red leaves change to orange and orange to yellow and yellow to brown, um, imagine the, the light that those leaves cast down onto us and releasing some of those leaves as well, releasing them down to the ground. You know, our, our mind is constantly in a transitional state. And as we move through these seasons, shifting from states of maybe agitation or tension and to a more peaceful place. And just as those leaves fall in a graceful way, allowing ourselves to also transition in a graceful way.
Remember that each season is a gift. Each season is a new opportunity to change and to grow. And that if this season of your life now has been difficult to remember and remind yourself that there are new seasons to come. And that hopefully those new seasons will bring joy.